Welcome. This is the Life Habits Podcast Series, and my name is Carl Vradenberg. This is the series that helps you to learn new habits to optimize your life in order to stay sane in this crazy world. This is episode number 40, and the topic for today is psychological capital. And I'm delighted to have joining us again, Catherine Britton, who was with us in, I think it was episode 16. Welcome, Catherine. Welcome, Carl. And let me just tell you a little bit about Catherine or remind you of what uh, Catherine is all about. She's Master of Applied Positive Psychology. She's Associate Certified Coach with Theano Coaching. She's the Associate Editor of Positive Psychology News Daily. She's an adjunct faculty member of the University of Maryland Project Management. And she's the co-editor of a brand new book, with the title of Resilience, Navigating Life's Curve. So lots of uh, items there to uh, ponder in terms of all the things that Catherine's doing. You must keep yourself rather busy, Catherine. Well, I think of myself as being a bit of a butterfly. That is, I have a lot of things going on. And, you know, at one point I gave a talk to a bunch of people and I said, I think focus is highly overrated. That I think that for some people, having a lot of things and sort of Flitting from one thing to the next, at least at my time in life, is a wonderful way to live. So I have all of the things that I'm working on tend to dovetail with each other. So I learn something in one that carries over to another. But I'm also open to what the universe brings me. And that is a a great sense of joy. And I see, I subscribe to your newsletter and I see regular content coming through there. You do all this other work. So you're also providing, I think, a great service to a lot of people in focusing on positive psychology that we talked about last time, went into some detail in terms of overview and the like. And we also talked, I think, in general about this topic of psychological capital. But what if you could just provide an overview once again, just to set us into the right context for this session today, Catherine? Okay. Positive psychology, though it's been around in some ways, since Aristotle or William James or a lot of previous, you know, a lot of people have thought in positive terms. Positive psychology as a field was launched in 1998 or so by Martin Seligman, who was then the president of the American Psychological Association. And he gave a speech that I thought was very eloquent, so I'm going to read you just a tiny bit of it. Mm-hmm. He said that as psychologists, we should have as much focus on strengths as on weakness as much interest in building the best things in life as in repairing the worst, and as much attention to fulfilling the lives of healthy people as to healing the wounds of the distressed. Now, one of the things you'll hear there is that there is, in no sense, are, are we throwing out healing and repairing. All of those are still an important part of psychology. What he was trying to say to people was that we have too much focus on what goes wrong and not enough focus on what goes right. And I find myself in, you know, practically every day I'll have the experience of starting to work on something and realizing I'm going right for the problem. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's the problem here, what can be fixed. And if I just step back and think a little bit differently and say, what's already working well here, that I can start moving in a much, with a lot more energy. There's um, another another psychologist that, I'm, that I admire named David Cooperwriter, who makes the comment that the good way to drain the energy for change out of a system is to focus on the problems in it. 
So if you want to change something, many times it works better to figure out what's already going well and how can you build on that rather than trying to figure out what's broken and needs to be fixed. Um, there's Positive psychology has been in the news a fair amount lately. There have been people like Barbara Ehrenreich who's written a book that's quite critical of it. I think that, and I, I have to say right out that I have not read her book, all right, so this is all second or third hand. But I think that part of what goes on is that there's a feeling that positive psychologists are telling everybody, you need to be happy. If you're happy, your life will be better. You'll be healthier. You'll be able to overcome whatever health problems you have. And if you can't overcome your health problems, it's your own fault. That's not the message that we're talking about here. If I could explain it a little bit differently, I, could, I would do it as a paraphrase of something, I'm a diabetic, and I've been a diabetic for nearly 30 years. And I had a doctor one time who said to me, look, about 10% of the people with diabetes will have complications, heart disease, you know, lose their legs, have eye problems, whatever, no matter how well they deal with, with it, no matter how well they control their the diabetes. About 10% will not have problems, no matter how, no matter how, careless they are, no matter how high their blood, blood sugar runs on a regular basis, 80%, you know, the 80% in the middle can affect their outcome by their behaviors. And you have to bet that you're in that 80%. And therefore, that your behaviors, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, makes a difference in your outcome. There's no guarantees anyway. You know, it's not your fault. I mean, you could be in the 10% that no matter how well you do it, you just can't avoid the complications. There's no fault that associates with you if you do have the complications. And to the same degree, it's not entirely, I mean, there's a lot of luck. You know, it's not entirely your, what you earned that made things turn out well. But you have to, your day-to-day -day behavior, if you're betting on the fact that you do have some input into your outcomes, then things will go better. So I think of positive psychology for people in general as being a way of, of, of betting on the fact that the choices you make, the, the way you think, uh, where you spend your day in terms of your feelings, that that has an outcome, it has an impact on, your, on the general outcome of your life. So one of the things we talked about last time too, Catherine, that you just alluded to as well at the beginning of that uh, introduction was the notion of the focus on the positive versus the focus on the negative. I always liken that to the focus in medicine for a lot of years was, you know, what was health? Health was the absence of illness and that uh, in actual fact, we're only more recently, probably maybe even around the same amount of time as the positive psychology sort of focus has been around as well. We're now realizing there are all kinds of benefits to not just having the absence of illness and calling that health, but in fact, doing all kinds of positive things to our bodies in terms of getting to what some call super health. So I think probably that kind of approach too, where critics may be around saying, well, why should you do things like, you know, running or watching what you eat or, you know, as long as you're not ill, you know, why do you need to go do anything? What we're all about here, I think, in the topic of positive psychology as well is really trying to optimize, to realize what you've got and that there may well be some, you know, negatives around in life, but to focus on the positive and really drive that as a solution as opposed to just eliminating those negatives. I mean, that is that another way to maybe think about this? That's a very, very fair way of putting it. And I guess one of the things, one way you could extend that is to say, you know, there was a, there was a gentleman who wrote a book 
about uh, aerobic exercise. I can't even remember his name. But a few years after he wrote the book, he was out exercising and he had a heart attack and died. James so Fix. You could look, James yeah. Fix. Yeah. So you could look at that and say, well, that's evidence that nobody should run, right? Because if James Fix had a heart attack, you know, what might happen to me? Yet what, you know, in my mind, that's just another example of the 10, 80, 80, 10. You know, it's, he pro you know, who knows what have happened, would have, would have happened to him when he might have died if he hadn't been doing the exercise. You know, it's just a big story that you can't know all the ins and outs of. Right. And that one, actually, I'm thinking of that one in particular, Catherine. I think one of the other things that's about taking an overall more comprehensive view is looking at, you know, all aspects of your life and not finding a silver bullet either. And not to get into the James Fix running uh, sort of uh, history uh, too much, as I recall the actual history of it that uh, i think he was placing everything on just simply running would solve everything and he didn't didn't get into nutrition which people do that are runners these days big time uh, they feed their bodies appropriately to get the kind of performance that they they need but uh, i think his was maybe a and it was before the time we really got into that kind of focus he had a sort of more silver bullet kind of approach to things where he just expected the running to solve all and having uh, heredity problems or having a really lousy nutrition uh, apparently uh, lousy sleep or whatever that uh, you can't you can just push it a little too hard and expect a simple a simple single solution to solve everything and I think that the the approach that you talk about in terms of the positive psychology approach I think is much more comprehensive as well and doesn't uh, preach a single bullet solution either right. So that, that brings us, uh, and thank you for clarifying that. So that, that brings us then to the, the concept of psychological capital. Psychological capital is a con an idea that's come from some researchers who are in business schools. Okay, so they're working with businesses. It's taking some of the ideas that have come out of positive psychology and putting them into the context of what difference could they make in a business environment. So... Psychological capital is, and it's the, the researchers are Fred Luthens, Carolyn Yosef, and uh, Bruce Avolio. And the concept of psychological capital is that there are psychological attributes that are positive, you know, very much aligned with positive psychology, that are measurable, that are changeable, because why should we focus on something that can't be changed, and that have a direct positive effect on business outcomes. So they've identified four qualities that, that so far, they, this is an ongoing research effort and they've got about 10 or 15 other qualities that they are working on to see whether or not they could fit them into this model. But the four that they started with are self-efficacy, which we talked about the last time uh, in, in, in um, self-efficacy, which we talked about in, in interview 16. Mm -hmm. Um, optimism, which we also talked about in interview 16, hope, and resilience. So I thought maybe what we could do today was to talk a little bit about hope and resilience, and then we would have covered all four of the attributes in psychological capital. Make sense? Sounds perfect, actually, Catherine. And I was also delighted to see that when we exchanged some emails back and forth in planning this session, that you also came up with some quotes, because the people who listen to this series particularly also enjoy reading or hearing about some uh, quotes to 
sort of set the context for the session as well. So why don't we go through some of the quotes that uh, you've uh, brought to share with us? Okay, well, let me start with hope. And first, I'm going to define hope, because there is such a thing as hope theory in, in positive psychology. I mean, hope is a word that we've all been using since we were first started being able to talk. Psychologists have built a theory of hope around having goals. And these are they, these can be medium-sized goals or huge goals. Um, you know, they could be um, working on world hunger, or they could be achieving something in your own personal life. Having a goal, one or more goals, having a sense that there are ways that you can get there. They refer to these as pathways. So usually more than one way is better than having just a single way to get there, but having the sense that there is a way for you to make progress in that direction. And then finally, something they call agency, which is the motivation and drive in yourself to make to make progress in that direction. So hope then, goals, pathways, agency, sometimes people refer to that as way power and willpower. So hope is this combination, this sense of that there is something that you are yearning towards and there is a way to get there. You believe it is possible to get there. So let me start with the, the first quotation I had. Hope doesn't come from calculating whether the good news is winning out over the bad. It's simply a choice to take action. That's Anne Lappe, uh, who has, has been working on sustainability, food politics, social change. So she's been thinking about some very big issues. Uh, so you can think of that as hope in that particular statement as there are some really big problems that we humans face. There are you know, problems all around the, around the globe. We can get very discouraged and feel they're too big, that we can't make any progress, that we can't do them. Or we can look at them and say, you know, I'm just going to take the first step. So in, in, her, in her statement, she's holding out the notion that we don't have to have the end game in mind. We can have a sense of where we want to go, but then just take the first step. The second quote is from Eric Fromm. To hope means to be ready at every moment for that which is not yet born and yet not become desperate if there is no birth in our lifetime. I like that one because it puts each one of us, we are all part of the birth, but you could be, you know, you can think of it like Moses who led people to the promised land and yet was himself not allowed to enter. Sometimes your efforts, you don't necessarily even see the fruit of your own efforts. There are things that you do that, that, um, Oh, I'm reminded. I'm reminded of my husband's comment to me one time that that there are some things that only a family will do, like for example, plant an avenue of oak trees, because a family knows that that what what happens doesn't have to take fruit in your own lifetime. It might take fruit in, in the oak trees might become large and shady and beautiful in the time of your children or your grandchildren. So this kind of opens up the sense of Hope doesn't always have to be for a direct achievement of a goal that you see right now. It might be for a very, very, very large goal. And then finally, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. That's from Martin Luther King Jr. And I guess one of the things when I think of Martin Luther King Jr., I think about about the fact that I started school in a segregated school in the South, and the world is very, very different now than it was when I was in school. So there is there is room for infinite hope, but it's not necessarily that each one of us gets to see it as it plays out. A wonderful, wonderful quote. 
And first, let me tell you that these are five five statements that come from a longer checklist that was put together by some of the, the hope theory researchers. So a long list of things they tell people to, to do or not to do in order to build and maintain their hope. So to start, start out with, if you have a large goal, do break it down into smaller goals. And then once you've got it, you've broken it down into smaller sub goals, focus on the first small sub goal so that you can make progress. Okay, so begin by concentrating on the first sub goal. Second, do tell yourself that you've chosen this goal, so it's your job to go after it. So there's an element there of choice. You know, it is your goal, you chose it. But there's also an element of holding yourself accountable and getting yourself to move. The third one is do enjoy the process along the way. Sometimes we, we put our eyes on the end goal, how things are going to turn out, and we forget that a lot of the pleasure, a lot of the uh, fulfillment, a lot of the benefit comes along the way as we're making progress towards the goal. So open yourself up to the, the enjoyment of the process as you're moving along the way. I'm wondering too, Catherine, in terms of this, your number two about telling yourself to that you've chosen the goal and that it's your job to go after it, that that also sort of reinforces this whole notion of sort of the personal ownership of it. And that tends to lead to, you know, more commitment, um, higher motivation to, to achieve it if somebody really does take it to heart and knows that it's there, like you said, their decision that they've actually made the choice to go do this. And the other one that I think about when you talk about your number three, this notion of enjoying the process, this uh, living only for this future achievement of this goal way down the road and, um, you know, having that as, as something that you uh, will ha be happy and you'll feel fulfilled once you feel, uh, actually achieve that goal way in the future and not, like you say, enjoying the process along the way really can make a large part of your life as you're getting to that goal, you know, not all that enjoyable either. And so, like you say, having a, a focus on even the process of getting there, making that something that you're enjoying as well. A, a, excellent three. Okay. Now I want to have a couple of don'ts. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the, the number four in my list of five for hope is don't look for one perfect way to get there. Okay. So this, this refers back to the whole discussion I had earlier about having multiple pathways mm -hmm. because quite often you'll go along a particular pathway and you'll hit an obstacle and that will be that. You cannot make any further progress. So if you only have one way to go, only one way to get to your particular, um, go towards your particular goal, you might then sort of sit down and give up. But if you have multiple ways, if you have, and you don't require any particular way to be perfect, which is I mean, I could spend a long time talking about the, the fact that we don't need as humans to be perfect and that many times we need to understand and settle for good enough and not see good enough as being something less valuable than perfect, but instead seeing it as something that actually is productive and fruitful, whereas perfect is often just a figment of the imagination that never comes about. And when you talk about sort of multiple pathways and the like and not the the only perfect uh, way to get there can you give an example of anything that might sort of draw that as being more concrete in terms of um 
you know, if, if somebody's trying to solve a particular problem and they've now done your first three do's, um, they've got the notion of uh, su- uh, breaking it up into sub goals. They're really focusing on the first one and really sort of enjoying the process of getting there. They want to make sure that we're not, they're not only focusing on the, this one, one approach. What kind of uh, example or what kind of advice can you give on how to come up with uh, and get out of the thinking of that there's only one way to achieve that goal? Well, let me go through my, uh, my final okay. don't. Okay. Okay. And, and then maybe I'll come. I, I have actually an, an example in mind. So okay. I'll do Go my ahead. final don't, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about an example. So the last don't is don't conclude you're lacking in talent when your initial strategy fails. And that leads into my example. My, my daughter has decided that she wants to become a nurse practitioner. So she's been out working in the world for a number of years. Um, she's got some job experience, and now she's going back to school. And it turns out you've got to get your nursing prereqs. You've got to get a nursing BA, you've got to get, and then you go on and get to a nursing master's degree. And she's got this mental picture that she's going to do it. You know, she's going to go to, to school at Carolina, and then she's to get her prereqs. She's going to go to school to Carolina to get her RN. She's going to work for a while, and then she's going to go back to school. So what happens if along the way she finds out, for example, that she doesn't get accepted into the RN program at Carolina? So she could at that point say, my pathway got blocked, I can't make any progress, I quit. Or she could say, hmm, there are other ways to get an RN. What would those other ways be? And then start exploring. You know, there are other schools, there are probably in, in-service training programs, there are, there are a number of different ways to make progress towards that particular goal. So for her not to be 100% wedded to a particular way of getting there, but instead be able to see that if one path gets blocked, there are other paths. That's an important part of keeping hope alive. That's an excellent, excellent example. And I think the uh, the episode that I did, I did a couple on career topics and career strategies and talked, I think, in that session too about an observation of a number of people that have gotten to a certain level of proficiency and and achievement in their careers. And you look at what backgrounds they have and you look at almost virtually, it's the case that they have a circuitous route (laughs) that got them to where they are today. And that very few of them, you know, uh, really fulfill that single path that many people talk about when they're, you know, very young, when you say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You want to be a doctor, a lawyer, you know, that kind of thing. And then you sort of gravitate to the next level up that's maybe a little bit more uh, nuanced, but there still is an assumption that there's only a single way to get get there in terms of career stuff is a great example, is what I'm sort of suggesting here too, that um, some of the most successful people and the most people that are the most, I think, happy in their careers are people that actually did take routes through their lives to get there that may well have, as you say, had times when their particular one path sort of was blocked, and they, but they had multiple strategies and had that open-minded approach to saying, okay, well, we'll go around that way instead. So I think it's a phenomenal example to really flesh out these, these uh, the do's and the don'ts she just went through with regard to hope. Right. Well, if I'd had a lot of space on your, on your page, I could have listed the other 25, and, <laughs> and, but, but these, were the, these were the five that sort of struck me the most. Know that that um, and with with respect to the, uh, can I make just a little side comment here about mm-hmm. the one about enjoying the process along the way. 
I don't know a huge amount about neural transmitters, but I do have heard that there are there are different neurotransmitters that you experience in your brain when you are moving towards something. That there's a dopamine, there's a lot of dopamine in your brain, and when you're actually experiencing it. That is, you know, which is often more on the serotonin side of things. Mm-hmm. It turns out that a lot people get actually physically get more pleasure out of the dopamine-based moving towards, you know, moving towards something than they do out of the it's accomplished. So if you if if you think in terms of, of that the that it isn't just a matter of you should enjoy the, it as as you go along, but actually you will enjoy it more as you go along. Oftentimes people get to the end of a particular goal and have a real sense of letdown. And so having as much enjoyment as you can along the way makes a lot of sense. Excellent. No, I think it's a a great summary of the highlights, I guess. We didn't uh, get through the full, full list, but I think for the purposes of this session, where we're just getting through the highlights of how to optimize for and and deal with hope. I think they're a great uh, set that you just went through. So you also wanted to talk about uh, the other attribute that uh, even your book has the title of, of resilience. I wonder if we could move to that next. Okay, let me do that. And so so think of resilience as being the ability to, to bounce back, the ability to handle whatever life throws at you. And in, in, in some lives, what life throws at people is something very, very hard to face. Okay, so I always have to kind of think here with a little bit of humility and realize that there are some people who have to face some very, very difficult things in their lives. With respect to resilience, one of the researchers who's worked on resilience, her name is Ann Maston, and she studied children who have had to face very, very difficult problems in their lives. And she started out like a lot of people thinking the the children who come through these really, really difficult circumstances, foster children, violence at home, lack of educational opportunities, etc. The ones that, that there are some children who come through these things just a whole lot better off than other children. And at first they thought, oh, these are these are extraordinary children. We have to study them to figure out what makes them extraordinary. And what they found was instead that these just happened to be children that had substantial amounts of really rather ordinary assets. Okay, It wasn't that they were much smarter or they were much wiser, but they tended to have about them assets that they made use of like relationships with perhaps other adults in their lives, maybe in the family or out the, out of the family. I'm, I'm always reminded of, of a story. I don't think I told this story the last time. Mm-hmm. A, a story that was told to me by a friend who was a teacher who had a, a young man in her class who had a really horrible home life. You know, there'd been suicides in the family. There'd been uh, his parents were both dead by the time he graduated from high school that just horrible things had happened and she asked him and he was here he was he was doing very well in her class he was he was accepted into a college he had plans for the future she asked him how did you do so well and he thought for a minute and then he said you know whenever i start feeling low i remember my sixth grade teacher and my sixth grade teacher used to tell me that i had it in me to manage what was going on, and I had it in me to do, you know, to really achieve a lot in my life. So I hear her voice in the back of my head, and that makes me have the courage to do whatever I need to do. 
Well, there are two things that I really like about that story. Number one, you know, here is something that was as ordinary as a sixth grade teacher taking time to, to speak to this young man. But the second one is thinking about the fact that I'll bet that sixth grade teacher never knew what impact she had on this young man. Mm-hmm. So th- that makes me think of, well, who are the people that we touch as we move along the way that we can have an impact on with little things that we do that we may not have a big impression on our own minds, where we can have a, a contribution to the real resilience of other people. So I, that's one of my one of my personal models that I keep in the back of my mind is, is that sixth grade teacher. So resilience, um, the psychologist Ann Maston referred to it as ordinary magic. She says, it's not something based on something extraordinary that only a few people have. It's something that is accessible and open to practically anybody that is, you know, something that is within reach of all of us. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting relative to resilience was the the statement that Martin Seligman made in a, in a recent meeting that when they talked to people at West Point, they found that 90-some percent of the students had heard of post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. and somewhat less than 10% had ever heard of post-traumatic growth. But it turns out that post-traumatic growth is actually more common than post-traumatic stress disorder. So... One of the things he observed there was that talking to people and making them aware of the fact that there is such a thing as post-traumatic growth and that that's an alternative outcome of a particular traumatic incident, just making people aware of the fact that post-traumatic growth exists is one positive intervention, is something that can make a difference in people's lives. And there is a chapter, one of the chapters in our little book is about post-traumatic growth. So... To get to the quotations, I had to do some choosing. There's the one that we put on the back of the book is a Japanese proverb that goes, fall seven times, stand up eight, which is a very nice short way of putting it. Or in the words of Confucius, our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. So we all fall. And when we fall, the question is, can we then get back up again? The other quotation, which is actually another one that w- that appeared in the book that we we published, and it's actually in a chapter that was written about dealing with cockroaches in your in your in your kitchen. So the the man who wrote this chapter ends it by referring to Zorba the Greek, where everything has gone wrong. Okay, and the narrator says, when everything goes wrong, what a joy it is to test your soul to see if it has endurance and courage which is a very interesting way of flipping things around. What a joy it is to test your soul. Not, not a common way of thinking, but, uh, but an interesting change of, change of direction there. So let me go into my five for resilience. And these actually come out of my own chapter in the, in the little resilience book. Um, they come out of, they also come sort of indirectly out of an article that I wrote for the Anita Borg Institute, because the the people who were who were running the newsletter said that one of the things that their their membership were really concerned about was what happens if I lose my job. Okay, that's a very common worry now for people in lots and lots of different environments. So I got to thinking about well, okay, what can you do now? You still have your job. What can you do ahead of time to prepare yourself so that if something like this happens, you will be ready for it. Okay, so I came up with a four-step approach, and then I just added one to make it into 
to round it out for, out to ten, so I'd have a, a a ten list here. Okay, the first one is to learn how to calm yourself down. There are all kinds of people who will say, you know, you need to be able to talk yourself out of this, or you need to be able to change your thinking. But actually, if you are in the middle of a uh, of a high emotional state where you're angry, where you're fearful, where you're upset, it's very hard to change your thinking, and actually, sort of counter counterproductive. It's like um, it's like trying to swim upstream in a river. So the first thing to do before you start trying to change your thinking or change your point of view on things is to calm yourself down. Now, I find that the best way for me to calm myself down is to breathe very regularly and very slowly, six times a minute. So just breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, and doing it for 15 or 20 minutes. And that will calm me down to the point where my mind is no longer fixed on what's negative. And I have room then to do other kinds of thinking. Your way of calming yourself down might be very different. So one thing to do as you're preparing yourself to be able to deal with trouble in the future is to find out what is the way that works for you. And it has to be a way that you can think of and you can perform when you are in a highly negatively aroused state. We, we had talked in uh, previously in, the, in this podcast series as well, right along the same lines as what you're saying here, but I think you're saying it very well. And that is to, if the method that somebody wants to use is in fact breathing, in addition to simply concentrating on breathing and the like and, and breathing more, more slowly, to also focus on the out-breath versus the in-breath that the out-breath is more in control of or actually controls the parasympathetic or calming uh, nervous system, whereas the in-breath often is the one that's associated with the sympathetic or more active nervous system. And um, focusing on simply a few out-breaths that are longer can uh, have a calming influence. The other th thing that occurs to me is uh, Stephen Covey's line about... Uh, that there is a space between stimulus and response in humans and that we have to remind ourselves that and that if you have bad news or you are in a situation which is really highly aroused that you want to get some distance on, we as humans can in fact do nothing and breathing and concentrating on breathing is a good way of focusing on something so that you're not actually just immediately reacting and potentially making the situation even worse you know, than it is. So I think it's a great uh, a suggestion and, and one that we've at least touched on in a variety of different ways, but not in quite the way that you have here. There's a, there's a very nice little 16-minute or so videotape on the web by Richard Davison, where, who's a neuro, neuroscientist, and he makes the comment there that people have very, very different amounts of wiring between their prefrontal cortex, which is the front of the brain, you know, where being able to sort of think through, stop, you know, over, override the negative views, et cetera, that, that come in. And the amygdala, which is the part of your brain that's wired there to save your life in, in case of emergency. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the connection between you, that there is a connection between your eyes and your amygdala, that is that center that responds to, to emergency, that doesn't, that is faster than the connection that goes from your eyes through your brain to your prefrontal cortex. So there is a short period of time, uh, Jill Bolt-Taylor, the neuroscientist who wrote the book, My Stroke of Insight, she refers to it as being about 90 seconds. I'm not really sure how long it is, but she says you have 90 seconds 
where it is your body that controls the emotion. And then after that 90 seconds, you can take over and you can, you know, sort of turn it in a different direction. Richard Davidson makes the comment that people have different amounts of wiring from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, but with effort and practice, you can increase the wiring. So you can increase the amount of connections that you have that where your the front of your brain basically takes over and, you know, sort of takes the reins back over from the part of your brain that reacts very, very instantly and, in, and intensely mm-hmm. in, to negative stimuli. So that's, you know, several things sort of mixed up together there. But there's, there's a lot of stuff out there about the process of how to calm yourself down. I really just want to make the point today that before you try and do something else, anything else, calm yourself down and know how to do it. Know what works for you. So that's number, number six in my list. The next thing is to generate some some positive emotion, and this can be difficult if you're in the middle of some kind of a some kind of a crisis. So, an awareness of what kinds of things generate positive emotion in you. You might have a collection of cues. I have a friend that has a playlist of music that makes her feel better. Um, some people have like collections of poetry that they like to read through that remind them that you know the world is bigger than their own their own small problems at the moment. Some people will go out and look at the stars. Some people will call a friend. Some people will look at joke books. Whatever you need to remind you that you can experience positive emotion and to generate a little, there's a good reason for doing that in that it makes the next step easier. I'm reminded of the Norman Cousins book and work on, uh, with regard to almost any physical ailment that when you add positive emotion and he's the one that was advocating uh, that uh, when you have an illness not to stay in a hospital but instead uh, he uh, booked himself into a hotel room and he just uh, rented movies comedies and absolutely belly laugh type comedies and it's very hard to not react to those kinds of positive things to go completely out of yourself and be just absolutely engrossed in like you say the the experience that of that positive emotion and it does in fact you know take you out of the you know negative state that you're in it's not permanent but it's uh, something that like you say reminds you of your ability to uh, enjoy yourself and doing just a lot of it also generates when you're talking about the physiology a minute ago in a variety of the examples that you were giving you know just sheer laughter and that kind of positive emotion that itself generates all kinds of physiological positive reactions in your body as well yes yes and there's a there's another chapter in the little resilience book about um about laughter mm-hmm. and laughter yoga and watching this particular author watches Comedy Central as her news source rather than reading the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So so positive emotion. And the, I guess the main thing I want to say here is not just the value of positive emotion, but also thinking ahead and gathering your cues around you. So um, one of the things that I do is keep an email folder where I put emails where people have said, you know, oh, thank you so much for doing such such and such, or you did a good job of such and such. I keep my my being appreciated email folder as a place to look whenever something in my work life makes me feel a little bit low. So it's collecting your cues, having them available. That's what you can do ahead of time so that when the, the time of trouble comes, you're prepared. So that's number seven. Moving on to number eight, there are 
there's a lot of material out there about different ways of reframing your thinking that takes it away from a very um, negative self-defeating approach and points it in the direction of, of there being a possibility, of there being possibilities or other interpretations that are not so hurtful to yourself. We talked at, at, at length in interview 16 about learned optimism, and this is very related to learned optimism. My suggestion here, though, is just to practice some of these techniques of reinterpreting the world. Practice them at times when you aren't highly troubled, so that when the time comes that you need them, they're not, that they're, you know, they're they're easy for you, that you know how to get your mind into that kind of thinking. So there is, for example, there's a wonderful book by Karen Rivich called, Karen Rivich and Andrew Shate called The Resilience Factor, and it has a number of suggestions in it of different ways to reframe your thinking and, you know, to be, to be challenging the negative interpretations that put you in a, in a place that is de-energizing and that makes you feel worthless or unhappy about things. So number eight is to learn how to do that. Okay, mm -hmm. So that you're prepared when the time comes, you don't then have to sort of figure it out from scratch because there are a lot of people who've worked on ways to do it. There's, there's one technique where you take something that seems like it's a catastrophe and you just, you carry it one step further. You know, you, you, you think through, well, you know, what would happen then and what would happen then and what would happen then and carry it as far as it's going to go. And sometimes, you know, the, this catastrophizing, you'll end up, you know, with yourself dying on a park bench as a homeless person. I mean, people, their, their negative ima imaginations can, can go quite a long ways. Then to do the opposite and saying, well, what's the best thing that could happen? And following that as far as you can make it go. And oftentimes people can't go as far in the positive direction as they can. I mean, they don't solve world hun hunger in their in their positive direction, but it, you know, they don't go quite as far as having themselves dying on a park bench. Mm -hmm. But still, they've gone in. They've seen that there are now two directions, two extremes. And then the third step is to sort of figure out well, where am what is most likely. It's something in between these two. What's the most probable thing that's going to happen here? And many times this this thinking about the what's the ca catastrophe and the absolutely wonderful and then what's the most probable is a way of taking the negative energy out of the thinking. So that's number eight. Number nine is to keep an inventory of your assets and your the resources that you have available, the successful experiences you've had dealing with trouble in the past, um, to keep some form of inventory, whether you know you're like me and you like to write things down, or whether you draw pictures that remind you, or you have just some other cues that remind you that you have relationships you can draw on, that you have that at times in the past you had managed. My my sister, for example, had uh, osteomyelitis when she was 15 years old, which had her in a in a great deal of pain, uh, unable to walk, was in the hospital for a while, was in a body cast. And she can look back on this and say, you know, when I went through that experience, you know, she wasn't a complainer. She, But I, I dealt with a lot of pain 
and I came through it. I came out the other end. So I have the experience of having dealt with pain in the past that I can then draw on to remind me that I can survive it in the future. So sometimes being able to remember times that you've actually overcome difficulties in the past, it can be a great resource for dealing with difficulties in the present or the future. So that's number nine. And number 10, I would like to just round this up with referring to a researcher named Todd Cashton, who wrote a book last year called Curious with a question mark. And he writes about curiosity and curiosity being a major uh, um, engine of well-being. And one of the things that he suggests to people, he, he actually started out as an anxiety researcher and realized after over a period of time that anxiety and curiosity are like two ends of the same spectrum, that anxiety is a fearfulness and a drawing away and curiosity is a moving out towards and investigating. Mm -hmm. So he suggested people that they have this mental image of an explorer knob in their brains and that when they start being anxious about something, that they think about turning up their explorer knobs how much, you know, what they can be curious about about this situation, what they want to learn about it, what there is to, to explore as a way of, of basically taking the focus off of the anxiety knob. So I just suggest here as my final in the list of 10 mm-hmm. that people have a mental explorer knob and turn it up when they are needing to deal with anxious situations. An excellent set. And uh, the notion, just this last one that you mentioned with regard to the explorer knob i think the the visualization actually in several of your last ones are are important that the one that you're talking about with regard to not only thinking through a catastrophe and what all the uh, negative could happen you know what the positive could be you're actually forcing yourself to visualize a lot of detail that you may never actually have thought about and then like you say to get some of the energy out of it but you also get some level of clarity in terms of what might actually happen in those directions and this latter one too of that uh, that knob the explorer knob that visualization often is helpful to get into a situation like that, get your mind engaged in something that is a reminder, like, oh, I want to think about that. I want to switch that you know, knob and turn that up. Visualizing that, first of all, takes you out of the immediate situation of the anxiety anyway, gives you some distance, but also gives you an ability to use a mechanism uh, like this, this visualization of the knob to really change your focus in the situation and focus on something else uh, in it. And, and it strikes me that a lot of what you've been saying, Catherine, and I, I keep thinking about the term, and I love the term of psychological capital. You know, when we think about financial capital, when you think about any other attributes, and then you start to think about psychological capital and you realize that if we have these skills you're describing and also developing those skills. So you mentioned earlier that you need to practice some of these things when you're not in the moment of a particularly troubling one. You want to develop those those skills, developing those skills, keeping, like you say, those assets that you described as well, you know, the descriptions of, you know, the emails from the, that are positive that you've collected, you're preparing that, you know, that's another instance of putting that capital, you know, in the bank account, so to speak, the psychological bank account. And then these other techniques, you know, things like this Explorer knob, to be able to practice that and also be able to bring it up and use it as you might if you're thinking about any other kind of capital that you might want to draw upon to solve a particular problem. You know, here's a whole reserve of 
psychological assets and and skills and the like, overall capital that you could then apply to your life and then be much more, you know, resilient, have a, an approach to hope and all the other or the other two at, uh, attributes that you'd mentioned regarding this term. Even the term itself, I think, just, I think, raises the level of importance of these types of topics in somebody's thinking about being a rounded individual. You know, when you think of how are you financially, how are you, you know, spiritually, how are you interpersonally? How are you just in terms of your own, you know, psychological bank? And uh, so I, I love this notion of uh, psychological capital. And you've done a great job, you know, describing all this in today's session or sort of second installment, if you will, on these uh, on these topics. Now, I just, before we finished up, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about the book, Resilience, Navigating Life's Curves, both in terms of I'll put a link in the show notes to where they can get the book, but maybe you could just say a little bit more about it, sort of maybe what uh, led to its being written. I know it has a lot of contributors to it as well. Maybe you could just say a little bit more about the book itself. I would I would love to talk a little bit about it. Um, as, as, I, as you mentioned earlier, I'm an associate editor for an online publication called Positive Psychology News Daily. Um, we call it PPND, like all acronym, you know, all uh, technical people, we have to put an acronym on it. Mm -hmm. um, PPND has been running since the January 1st, 2007, and by now we have accumulated about 650 articles written by professors, um, graduates of MAP programs, um, guest authors that we've invited from business, and these are about topics ranging from strengths to optimism to gratitude to to wellness to business to students in school to they you know they cover all of the interests of the 60 plus authors that have contributed to the publication so my co-editor and I looked at the list of of articles and said you know we've got a lot of raw material here of interesting things for people who aren't necessarily going to come to the web and search for Positive Psychology News Daily, and who are not as interested in the research as some of the people that come to our website. It's one of our editorial requirements that the articles be based on research and that the research be, be explicitly mentioned in the article. But we, we thought, you know, there's some people who might be a little put off by statements like researcher Ann Maston and colleagues at the University of Minnesota did such and such. I think I have a university right. Anyway, so what we did was to pick out, pick a topic area. And one of the other thing about a positive psychology news daily is that the articles just come up in sort of random order. On Monday, you might have an article about business. On Tuesday, you might have an article about gratitude. On Wednesday, you might have an article on resilience. On Friday, you might have an article on teaching and schools. I mean, it's just a random order. So what we did was to pick out 16 articles about the topic of resilience, put them together in a flow so that one builds, you know, one article builds on the next, and so there's an accumulation, you know, of, of concepts. One, so as you read through it, it sort of all fits together, and you start getting a bigger and bigger picture of the whole piece. And also to include some of the discussion, we have a, a site where people come in and put comments. And authors and other people in the community will answer. And so sometimes there'd be a lot of discussion back and forth about, you know, in one case we were talking about a technique for disputing thoughts. And one of the people wrote in and said, you know, I'm just never, you know, this never works for me. I, 
I just can't seem to do it this way. And so about four people made suggestions of things that he could do to get past the particular obstacle that he was describing. So we included some of the, the commentary that if, if it were something that seemed to add to the general story. So we, we have articles, an organization, a sort of a flowing, a flowing sequence. We took out a lot of the jargon and references to the research. We figured if anybody wanted to see that, they could go back to the original article. And, and then we had it illustrated by Kevin Gillespie, who is the husband of one of the people who was authoring for the book and himself is a, a gifted illustrator. So we have a very, you know, in my mind, a very uh, visually interesting book that, that leads, it's not a very long book, it's about 125 pages, but it's got many, many different ideas about, of things that people can do to build their own capacity for resilience and to ride out whatever storms, you know, the storms that they may encounter in their lives. So it's, it's um, available on Amazon and your link will take people to it. And uh, we'd very much like to hear back, you know, particularly if people find it useful or if they've got ideas of what might have made it more useful because we want this to be the first of many books on topics. You know, we've got this wealth of 650 articles. We're now working on a book on gratitude and another one on strengths. So we're, we're hoping to make this into an ongoing series. Sounds like a great book and great series, and anybody that uh, is interested in digging in to these topics more should uh, check that out. Like I said, I'll uh, put the link in the show notes. And uh, finishing up, I just wanted to ask, uh, we know that you are, and I mentioned off the top, that you're also a coach, and that uh, we mentioned on the podcast last time too, that you do work with people. And so while this podcast series is really one of providing information and then sharing that out with these audio podcasts, and they're somewhat uh, one way, although I do also always do appreciate feedback. In fact, I have my positive list of emails the way that you do, Catherine, and it is also comprised of a lot of the words that people that listen to this series send me. So I prize those and cherish those bits of feedback as well. But we did talk about that uh, you do do one-on-one sort of work. Is uh, Maybe it's a good idea to also just remind people how they may be able to get a hold of you. I believe that you'll probably have a mail to link in the article. But the best way to get in touch with me is by email. And I do... I have a newsletter that I publish every month that has articles. I guess I'm up to about the 38th article. That I, so I'm a little bit behind you, Carl, if you've already gotten to to 40. I think I'm up to 38. Okay. Um, but, uh, so I welcome people to my newsletter list. I also do complimentary sample sessions so that if somebody just wants to talk through something, I'm happy to do that. And then if it turns into a co- coaching relationship, fine. And if it doesn't, that's fine as well. So anybody who would like to reach me, I'd love to hear from you by email. Great stuff. Well, Catherine, this was really, really good. I I think we covered a lot of material. I think that will be helpful to a lot of people. And additional avenues for getting more information via the book, via working directly with you as well. And I want to thank you so much for spending the time with us today. And maybe we will do this again sometime as well. But uh, thanks so much for your involvement. Thanks to all of you who have been listening as well. And we'll talk to you all next time. And bye for now.